Hello, true crime friends. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. First of all, I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, that really sucks, and I hope it gets better for you. Before we get into today's episode, I actually have some business to discuss with you all. First order of business, we have a Patreon. Yes, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia, we have a Patreon. So please, 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 if you can, become a member and subscribe. We've got some really awesome extra content for you guys, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Also, what's really cool is at the end of each episode, we will read both the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia. We'll read out the names of new members at the end of each episode. So you get some new content, and you'll get your name right out on the end of an episode. So that's pretty cool. Also, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, we have a book club. I don't know if you've known that. And I don't really mention it too much on True Crime, just because it's a little bit of a separate entity. But I think you guys will really enjoy this book. We are reading currently The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling. It is like a horror, gothic, crime-ish type novel. It's really good so far. I have maybe like 100 pages left. And yeah, I mean, I've just been breezing through it. I'm hoping to finish it today. And because like I said, it is just, it's a really good book. And I think you guys would enjoy it. Because like I said, it's got that crime, horror type of feel to it. As the date gets closer, I will let you guys know when we will be going live on Instagram to have the actual book club. But if you're looking for something to read, The Death of Jane Lawrence by Caitlin Starling is definitely a great book to check out. Also, as many of you know, True Crime and Academia is on Instagram at True Crime and Academia. But did you know we also have a TikTok? Well, I have a TikTok. It's again just at True Crime and Academia. I will post videos about the cases that are coming up, some of my crazy antics. There's not too much because, like, I'm millennial, so this is, like, new technology for me, so I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> please, please don't be too, too harsh. I, it's really just me just making a fool of myself, so if you want to watch me make a fool of myself, go to Ed True Crime and Academia on TikTok, and you will see it there. So, last week's episode, we discussed the first part of, not really that it's a first part, because let's face it, life doesn't work that way, but... In part one of the murder of Andrew Bagley, we discussed his murder specifically, how he was killed, and who did it. This week is extremely rough. I'm not even gonna try and be like, oh yeah, it's gonna, it's, it's gonna be okay, everyone. No. It's, it's really sad. So... Unlike most of my episodes, I do have a disclaimer for this one. Um, this episode disclaimer is going to be discussing suicide and infant murder. <sighs> yeah. It's really rough. I completely understand if you do not want to listen to this episode, if you need to skip it. Um, 
On Instagram and Twitter, I will try to do, or not Instagram and Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, I will try to do some sort of like short version that isn't so graphic. So for those of you who listen to part one and are like, eh, this is, might be too much for me. I don't think I can listen to part two. Then I suggest maybe hold off, don't listen. Or I would listen to maybe the first half of the episode and then like right when, or listen, and then listen to the ads. And then right after that, I'd cut it off. Cause then at that point it's going to get even worse. Well, actually, let me just double check. So I don't want to give you guys misinformation. Yeah. So roughly after the ad breaks in this episode is where I would cut it. If you are at all interested. Um, just because after that break, it gets even, it gets rough. So, like I said, I completely understand if you need to skip this or skip half of the episode. Like I said, I will try to do some sort of summary that isn't so graphic. So that way you can hopefully digest the details of what happened and how this case concludes without having to listen to all the really heartbreaking stuff. So... With that, my darlings, let's get into it. So last week, I left you off with a huge bombshell that surely Andrew Bagby's murder and ex-girlfriend was pregnant with his baby. Now, she announced this via a press conference, and upon hearing this, Kirk Quinn, the creator of this documentary and lifelong friend of Andrew, knew what he needed to do. He knew his next project, he needed to make a documentary about Andrew, in order to show Andrew's unborn child, who would later be called Zachary, and just teach him about who his father really was, you know, the kind and talented jokester that was Andrew Bagby. Kate and David Bagby, Andrew's parents, quit their jobs and moved to Newfoundland so they could fight for custody for Andrew's child. They hired a lawyer named Jacqueline Brazil to take on their case. After hearing their case, Miss Brazil spoke with the regional director of St. John's Child and Youth and Family Services named Elizabeth, or Betty, Day. She expressed the Bagby's concern about the safety of their child and pleaded with the Canadian government for them to obtain sole custody of their only grandchild. They had hoped that this would be an easy, common-sense decision given the circumstances. The mother of this child is wanted for the murder of the child's father and is facing extradition. Again, I can't even begin to imagine the roller coaster of emotions that Kate and David were going through. I mean, to have your grandchild, you know, your only son's child, you know, your only child, <laughs> to have their child being mothered by their killer, I mean, that is just an insane and horrible situation. And I completely understand them wanting to get custody of little Zachary. I mean, I would too. I think I would do anything and everything I could to get my grandchild away from their father's killer, especially if the killer is the is like the child's mother. Sadly, this was not an easy road for Kate and David, and there's really no way to sugarcoat this, but the courts really fucked up this case, and I really do blame them for their lack of organization and due diligence. On February 15th, 2002, the courts met. Kate and David were present, as they will be through every court hearing. 
After really nothing at all, the court adjourned until March 11th, which they then again decided on really nothing other than to reconvene on March 25th to set a date for the extradition hearing. That date was supposed to be May 27th, but there was a dispute over the translation of Section 32 of the Extradition Act, which held everything up. Honestly, I have never personally seen anything like this. I mean, they met three times to decide on a date for an extradition hearing, only to have that extradition hearing held up. And I mean, this is just, I hate to say it, even though it's true, but like, this is the beginning of this whole string of bullshittery that happens with the courts with this case. Now, I do understand wanting to postpone because of a translation dispute. I get that. Everyone should have a right to a fair trial. And if there is a dispute of the law, or there's a dispute of the law over translation or language, then it needs to be addressed. But I can't understand why it was brought up so late in the game. They had two other court hearings before they could find, I mean, three. They had three <laughs> hearings, three court dates where nothing happened, where this could have been brought up. But no. Now, we're going to decide that on the date that they're supposed to try her for extradition, that that's when they're going to bring up this dispute. And honestly, to me, that just seems like a really cheap tactic, either by Shirley's lawyer or by Shirley herself. And it just prolonged the whole thing and really just made the window in which one can be extradited a lot smaller. On June 11th, everyone was back in court, but the session only lasted five minutes. Because Judge Derek Green, who was presiding over the case, felt that he couldn't rule over which translation should be followed, the English translation or the French translation of this law. So they adjourned until July 30th. Now, during this time, Kate and David thrived. I mean, as much as they can, given the circumstances. But they were thriving in their new home. They easily made new friends and they became members of this church that they went to and you know people really liked them and in many of the friends and neighbors and churchgoer interviews they practically gush over them and honestly I mean the whole Bagley family Andrew included they're just incredible and I mean honestly I don't know if I'm gonna stop saying that during this episode but just they're just incredible people on July 18th 2002 Zachary Andrew Turner was born Kate and David rushed to the hospital to see them, but they weren't allowed inside. Shirley had forbidden it. So the Bagby's first glimpse of their only grandson was from five feet away through a small piece of glass. They left a present for Zachary outside the room. Now aside from Shirley being a killer, she's a fucking see you next Tuesday. I'm sorry, but bitch is just not strong enough. It's not. It's not a strong enough word to describe her. <sighs> the fucking nerve. Immediately, the Bagbys filed for custody of Zachary. And as expected, just like with her extradition keys, Shirley drew out this process for as long as she possibly could. Eventually, the Bagbys agreed to one hour of supervised time per week. And every time they went to these visits, they had to be searched. Really? The two people whose son is dead because of this grip because of their grandchild's mother, they have to be fucking searched. Get the f- mm. 
Mm. Ridiculous. Fucking ridiculous. Understandably, though, Kate and David wanted more time with Zachary, so they appealed the decision. Shirley, of course, came up with lie after lie after lie after lie just so she could keep the situation the way that it was. Now, I forget the specific lies, but from what I remember, it seemed like she was trying to make out that they were the Bagbees were neglectful, which everyone knew was a fucking lie, so it didn't really work out. On September 19th, 2002, the extradition hearing finally began, and evidence was presented. But Shirley's lawyer, Randy Piercy, argued that there were articles and sections of the Extradition Act that prove her case had expired and the option to appeal had long passed the 90-day time frame. Basically, he just told them to stop the whole thing because of statutes of limitations. Bullshit. And I fucking hate statute of limitations. Thankfully, Judge Green had some sort of brains and ruled to have the hearing on October 18th, but it was delayed four days until October 22nd. The judge then ruled in the Bagby's favor, and the extradition hearings were scheduled for November 14th. On November 14th, 2002, Judge Green ruled that a jury would most likely find Shirley guilty of the murder she was accused of, and ordered her to be incarcerated at Clarenville Corrections Facility for Women. The Bagby's would have custody for Zachary as long as Shirley was in jail. This came with conditions, of course. (laughs) Shirley would be able to call and check in on Zachary whenever possible, and they would have to take Zachary to the prison to visit her. Again, the amount of strength and self-control and just, I don't even know, that Kate and David Bagby just show throughout this entire tragedy is unimaginable. I can't imagine how difficult it would be to have to sit there and face your son's murderer on a regular basis in order to have access to your only grandchild. I mean, again, I'm going to say it again. They are truly incredible. On January 10th, 2003, Shirley was released from prison and the Bagbys were forced to give Zachary back. While in prison and out of money... Shirley appealed to Judge Green, who, through his secretary, gave Shirley detailed instructions on how to write an appeal. This appeal was granted, and the case was turned over to a Judge Gail Walsh, who ruled on her appeal, despite many legal experts finding that Shirley's case was frivolous. Now, if you think that's bad, it's about to get worse. According to Kate Bagby, she knew that Shirley would go free when she saw Judge Welsh fawning over Shirley and her level of education. Judge Welsh told Shirley to behave herself and ruled to have her freed on judicial and term release. Judge Welsh's ruling stated that she did not believe Dr. Turner to be a threat because, quote, the crime she was accused of was violent but specific in nature, as it was only directed at one person. Therefore, she could not possibly be a danger to the public at large. The judge also pointed out that she appeared to not have any sort of psychological disorder. Therefore, Shirley was let go on a $75,000 bail that would never have to be paid. (laughs) I don't understand what's going on with these judges in Canada. Like, what the actual fuck? (laughs) 
First, you have Judge Green telling her in like a complete sketchy way, because again, he's telling his secretary to tell her this, how to make an appeal. And then you have fucking Judge Walsh over here showing complete favoritism towards her, who's a fucking murderer. Because what? She became a doctor and somehow now they're both in the, we're a powerful women's club. We're members because I'm a judge and she's a doctor. Get the fuck out of here. I also hate this whole, well, she killed the person she wanted to, so therefore she's not a threat to anyone else logic. That is fucking insane and completely misguided. I mean, what the fuck do you think is going to happen the next time she gets pissed off at someone and wants to kill them? Hmm? What do you think is going to happen? Clearly, she's fucking capable of killing people. But no. No. Nah, not surely. She ain't no threat to society. <laughs> Both of these... Oh my god. Sorry, I'm not laughing because it's not that it's funny. It's frustrating and that is just my initial reaction. For frustration and just all of this bullshittery. Truly. I mean... I don't understand how both of these judges can still go. Honestly, I don't even know if they are going on. I didn't look into that. But honestly, they should have been disbarred and stripped of their positions and their credentials because of this bullshit. I mean, going back to Judge Green, it's not like she didn't have a lawyer who could have written up an appeal. I mean, an appeal that every other... I mean, it's also an appeal that every other loyal and legal personnel knew to be completely pointless and that there were no grounds for it. Why in the fuck are you telling a murder suspect how to appeal? Where in the fuck does that... I mean, again, she had a fucking lawyer, this Randy Piercy guy. He could have done this shit. Now, I understand that she was probably out of money and couldn't pay, but oh my god, why? 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 That is such a conflict of interest. But you're gonna, but I'm sure he argued, well, I didn't tell her, my secretary did. Oh, get the fuck out of here. Seriously. Oh my god. The Bagbys wrote another consent form. More visits during the week, longer hours at a time, and an overnight every two weeks. This meant having to keep close contact with Shirley, their son's killer. Shirley, of course, tried to change and reconfigure the schedule for her own benefit, but the Bagbys were determined and forced themselves to spend more time with Shirley in order to spend time with Zachary. At this point in the documentary, for those of you who have seen it, um, but if you haven't, there are multiple recorded calls being played. And every time Shirley talks about Kate and David spending time with Zachary for their legal visitation, she refers to it as babysitting. Now, I have never, and I probably will never, Consider grandparents watching their grandchildren babysitting. As a full-time babysitter slash, like, nanny, I find Shirley's use of the word babysitting insulting. How dare she call the parents of, their, of her son's father, who she murdered, babysitters? Honestly, it makes my fucking blood boil every time. Every single fucking time <laughs> she says it in the phone calls, I wanted to scream. Just call them for what they are. They are his grandparents, Shirley. <sighs> I want to call her C-word so badly, but... 
because it really is the only true word that I can find fitting, at least within myself, like, if I were to call her that, to describe how I feel about her. But, I mean, I already say fuck a lot on this podcast, so I'm really trying to contain myself here and not say it. <sighs> I just really fucking hate her. Hey, true crime friends. You've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, pre-cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home, look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm, like, obsessed with Coraline, and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It, on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram, send her a DM, and order today. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. As Zachary got older, the tone of Shirley's phone calls changed. In the messages, you can hear Shirley becoming increasingly anxious over her relationship with the Bagbees. At one point, she says part of her concerns come from the fact that she, quote-unquote, doesn't know what they are saying to him. Not only is that extremely selfish of her, but it shows that she's concerned that the Bagbees are telling Zachary the truth about what happened with his father. Now, first of all, who the fuck is telling an infant a heavy truth like that? Really, I mean, think about it. He's maybe one, no, almost one at this point. Who's telling a baby? <laughs> your mother killed your dad. Who? I, 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 he can't even, even, okay, so even if he was being told this, do you really think he's, like, retaining that? Come on. Seriously. Secondly, when Zachary becomes old enough, he should know the truth about his mother and how she killed his father. I mean, Shirley should also be in fucking jail, but here we are, so... In addition, Shirley's financial situation was up in the air, and she would often not have enough money for food or diapers for Zachary. Kate and David were determined to make sure that Zachary had everything that he needed, and that included buying food and diapers for him and dropping them off at Shirley's. After Zachary's first birthday, Shirley started becoming really jealous towards Kate, after Zachary started showing more preference to his grandmother than her. From then on, her jealousy towards Kate grew, and Kate states at one point that Shirley suggested that Kate take him. But of course, Shirley never handed custody over to the Bagbees, so it's not, I mean, and again, it's not like Kate wouldn't have wanted to. She totally would have taken him. And she should have. The courts should have given Zachary to the Bagbees immediately. <laughs> but, <sighs> stupid fucking systems, I swear to God. But it wasn't just Shirley that noticed Zachary's preference for Kate. 
Other close friends and family did too, and they were happy about it. It was obvious that Zachary was meant to be with Kate and David. Zachary proved that time and time again. In the videos, you can see that every time Zachary is told to choose between Shirley and Kate, he goes to Kate. Now, David made a very interesting observation about Shirley. He describes her as someone who knew the motions of being a mother, but lacked warmth. Now, let's remember last week's episode. I had told you that Shirley had two failed marriages and three kids from those marriages between the two. So, what happened to her kids? Apparently, during her time with Andrew, she had mentioned that she didn't want to live with her kids. Her older three children all lived with their biological fathers. And she was actually quoted saying, children are more trouble than they are worth. Now, I never doubted or never would doubt David's opinion of Shirley, but I just think that situation proves it. Like, I can honestly, I understand and I can sympathize with people, women specifically, who feel like they lack maternal instincts or just don't want to be a mother. And that's totally fine and normal for a lot of people. Some people just aren't meant to have kids. And again, that is 100% okay. Just because we're human doesn't mean that we have to procreate. What I do have a problem is when women like Shirley has not one, but four children total and only sees them as a problem. Now, there isn't any evidence to prove that she felt this way about Zachary, but given her situations with her other three kids, I wouldn't be surprised. I also think, though, with, when it comes to Zachary in her very sick mind, which we will delve into more soon, I think she just liked using Zachary as a way to fuck with the Bagbees. I really do. I think she liked having that power over them. I think she liked using Zachary as a pawn chip because I think it gave her, again, this type of power over them that she doesn't have with anyone else. And it's only because of Zachary. So, but again, that's just my speculation. The next extradition hearing was set for September 25th. Andrew's birthday. And it was likely that Shirley would be incarcerated again and return to the United States for trial. Finally, the Bagbies are getting some good news. Sadly, it would not last long. A month before, on August 18th, 2003, Shirley and Zachary were reported missing. Constable Welsh, not to be confused with Judge Welsh from earlier, and no, there is no relation, he left a note for Kate and David to contact him immediately. The next day, two bodies were found washed ashore, an adult female and a child. Kate and David were once again called to the coroner's office to identify a body. Again, I, I again, I'm, I'm gushing over them just like all their friends and neighbors, but I can't... I think it's important to remember that this is a reality for some people. It shouldn't have to be, but it is. Parents shouldn't have to identify the bodies of their children, and grandparents shouldn't have to identify the bodies of their grandchildren. <laughs> this shit should not have to happen. But it does. And this is probably the hardest part of the documentary to watch, so for anyone who is thinking of watching it, just brace yourselves if you do. Again, Kurt Quinn 
does a phenomenal job laying all of this out as respectfully as possible and with such a reverence. But again, it's very hard to watch. Sadly, the bodies belong to Shirley and Zachary. Now, the location of Shirley's murder-suicide is another sign, in case there weren't any other, of her mental instability. In July of 2003, Shirley met a man at a bar in St. John's. The pair went out twice until the man found out about Shirley's murder accusations, and reasonably, he broke things off with her. Shirley called the man and left over 200 voicemails, some of them in which she claims to be pregnant. Her autopsy, though, proved that that was a lie. Now, this was not the first time that Shirley displayed obsessive and jealous behavior. It was revealed afterwards that her boyfriend from before Andrew told Pennsylvania police that she had attempted suicide on his front porch after he broke up with her. Additionally, eight people, eight, had a restraining order against her. During her first sentence in prison, she was put on suicide watch every 15 minutes. She had been considered disruptive and had threatened to stab another inmate with a fork. None of this came up when Judge Walsh let Shirley out of prison and awarded her custody of her child. Seriously, fuck Judge Walsh. She seriously needs to be disbarred. I do put some blame on her for Zachary's death. If any other judge, excluding maybe Judge Green, of course, saw this case and saw her and saw every, you know, all of this evidence, she would have been denied custody and sure as hell never would have been let out of jail. The incompetence and deliberate favoritism demonstrated by Judge Walls is absolutely appalling. Now look, I don't wish ill will on anyone, or at least I try not to, but I honestly hope that Judge Walls has not slept well since and will not sleep well for the rest of her life for what she did. Seriously, fuck her. On the night of the murder-suicide, Shirley left a voicemail from her apartment to a friend claiming to have taken Zachary to this man's house, the one that she'd met from the bar. On her way to the man's house, she got lost and asked a woman for directions. When she got there, she parked behind his house, left a used tampon and photos of her and Zachary in an attempt to frame the man for their deaths. She then took Zachary towards the ocean by the man's house. A watchman claimed to have heard a baby cry around 2 a.m. <sighs> Sorry, I just need to take a deep breather for this because I don't, you know, I, I, I can talk about murder all I want. I can talk about the abusive childhoods of serial killers, but the death of an innocent infant is really hard <laughs> to talk about. <sighs> okay. The autopsy showed that Shirley had drugged Zachary with Ativan and then took a large amount of it herself before walking to the end of the pier with Zachary strapped to her with one of her sweaters. Shirley then jumped into the ocean and succumbed to the waves. Keith stated that the officer who found Zachary's body wrapped the boy in a blanket and kept him far away from the body of the wicked woman who murdered him. This poor, poor boy. The poor Bagbees. I mean... The only comfort that I was able to find, not that, you know, 
my comfort is important, but compare obviously compared to the other people involved in this case, I'm just retelling it to all of you. But something I found comfort in was the fact that because Zachary was so young, he probably wasn't mentally able to process the situation, not only that he was born into, but what was happening to him. Or the kind of person that Shirley was. But to some extent, I do think he kind of understood how shitty she was. But again, I can't imagine the amount of pain and suffering the Bagbees have had to endure this entire... It's honestly so unfair. So unfair. As expected, the Canadian judicial system wanted to cover its ass. Gerald Smith, the provincial minister of health, came out with a statement saying that all that occurred with Shirley's extradition case was carried out according to the law. And let me tell you, everybody, that is a crock of shit that I can smell all the way down here in New Jersey. On October 4th, 2006, a Dr. Marcus Stein dropped a bomb on the Canadian judicial system. Thank you, Dr. Stein. He wrote an extensive report from a 15-month private investigation on Zachary's death. He concluded two things. One, Zachary's death was preventable. And two, he was in the care of his mother when he sure as hell shouldn't have been. This gave the Bagbys at least some sort of comfort in knowing that they did everything they could to save him, and that the blame was appropriately placed on the justice system and child services for not doing their part to protect Zachary from Shirley Turner. As expected, none of the people involved in handling Shirley's extradition case, such as both judges, Judge Green and Judge Walsh, have commented or responded to Kurt Quinn's request for comment. Of course they have nothing to say. They know they fucked up. Why would they want to admit that to anyone? There's no reason that they could possibly have to make this go away. Or to make it better. Or to make anyone understand their logic. <laughs> so, not surprised there. The Bagbies have since become advocates for children of suspected killers. And for changes in the law so that no one will have to ever go through what they did. They met with many other support groups of parents who have lost children to violence and have started a scholarship in Andrew's name. And at the university where Andrew studied medicine, they hold a photography contest each year to honor Andrew because photography was a hobby of his and his dad's. David Bagby participates as one of the judges. Zachary's ashes, like his father's, were spread in three different places. The first in London, Kate's hometown. The other third are scattered with Andrew's beloved Uncle Ben. And the last third reside at home with Kate and David. The deaths of both Andrew Bagby and his son Zachary are honestly some of the most heartbreaking that I have ever come across. I've become numb, I guess, and accustomed to researching, you know, people who commit these horrible crimes and you know, other cases that really don't shed as much light on the victim or the victim's family and their journeys throughout some of the worst moments of their lives. And with this, you get that. And it is a completely different experience to learn about a case through the lens of the victim and the victim's family. I honestly can't tell you how many times I cried watching it. I mean, it is so horrible. I mean, between the multiple extradition hearings and the custody hearings and having to spend time with their son's killer in order to see their only grandchild, I am honestly in awe of 
the parents and grandparents that David and Kate Bagby are. I've tried to find and see if they're still alive. As far as I can tell, they are. I haven't seen any obituaries for them. And if they are still alive, I truly wish them all the best. They really deserve it. As for Shirley, it amazes me (laughs) that one person can cause so much death, so much heartbreak, and so much damage to others. If hell exists, it was meant for people like Shirley Turner. Honestly, I really don't know how to end this episode. It is extremely difficult. I mean, I'm glad we all got through it. Um, I promise next week's case will not be this heavy. It will be a lot lighter. I'm going to start covering some cheating scandals for you all. So just to give us a breather because this one is really hard. But I also felt like it was really important to tell this story just as Kurt thought it was important to tell this story you know just to hopefully look out for these signs look if you can if you have to i mean i hope you don't have to look for these signs but jesus if these signs are there these red flags if you're dating someone like shirley turner please get the fuck out get a do whatever you can get away because god it's so sad (sighs) well again like i said i know i probably just put a damper in your whole week and for that i'm sorry I hope you all enjoy the rest of your week. Truly, I don't know, go for a walk, grab a drink, a strong one, watch a comedy, something, because I I know I need something, man. I'm going for a walk, and I'm going to grab myself some beer from the liquor store, and I'm going to just chill out and dive back into the last hundred pages of The Death of Jane Lawrence and try to build my mood back up because again this case was just so so horrible thank you so much again for staying with me on this journey as i've said multiple times up until this point this is an extremely rough case and i appreciate you all hanging on and going through this sad sad journey with me that is the death of or the murder of andrew bagby and zachary turner So, again, I hope you all have a wonderful week. Again, I'm sorry if this ruined it. Do all the things you need to do. Please stay safe out there. Wear your masks. Get your vaccine or get vaccinated. Do all the things you gotta do. Please stay safe out there. Omicron is not cute. It's just not. There's all this scientific research that says that you should just get vaccinated instead of just trying to get the thing and get it over with because... Again, we really don't know the long-term effects of this, so I think it's best you do what you can to protect yourselves. So, I love you all. Thank you all for listening. Your support means the world to me. Please don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, leave a review. Do all the things. It helps us. Really, it does. And until next week, guys, I will see you later. True Crime in Academia is an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Members of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room include Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, and Jaron Usta, Marketing Director. Don't forget to like, rate, follow, and subscribe to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on your favorite podcast platform. And go to our Patreon in the podcast description below to become a patron and have access to exclusive, never-before-seen content.